I'm standing in the modern city of Al-Shahir, the site of the ancient city Philadelphia. This city was formed by the Greek Empire about 150 years before the time of Jesus by a king named Attalus II. Attalus founded the city and named it Philadelphia to honor his older brother as an indication of his deep love for him. As we know from the city with the same name in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia means brotherly love. This city was important in its location. It was founded by the Greeks as a gateway to the east. It sits along the King's Road, a major trading route, and it was founded to spread the culture of Greece. It was in essence a missionary outpost for the Hellenization of the region. In fact, it was sometimes called Little Athens because it represented the ideal of Greek life in a faraway place on the way to the mysterious east. Eventually, Greece as an empire was overshadowed by Rome, and this city became an outpost of Roman culture as well. The city itself was very loyal to Rome by the time of the 1st century, and worship of the emperor was alive and well here, as it is throughout the entire empire. The phrase Caesar is Lord was as common and as patriotic as the anthem God bless America might be today. In the midst of this prestige, however, there lurked an ever-present danger. This is a rich region agriculturally. During the 1st century AD when this letter was written, it was known for its vineyards that rivaled even the vineyards of Rome. And this is still true today. All around me and in this countryside are fertile fields of grapes and a variety of crops. And because of this emphasis on wine and growth and crops, the most prevalent Greek god who was worshiped in this whole area was Dionysus. He is the god of the grape harvest and wine drinking and fertility. And so you would rightly assume that the worship of this god was accompanied by lots of drunkenness and sexual promiscuity. So wine drinking and grape harvesting were a massive part of the industry in this area. And the reason that grapes and vineyards were so successful here in this area was the fact that this city along with much of the region has volcanic mineral rich soil. But this is where the danger emerges. Like many volcanic regions, the soil here is rich, but there's an ever-present danger of earthquakes from shifting tectonic plates and movement in the earth's crust. In fact, in 17 AD, a massive earthquake struck this city, completely destroying it. And the earthquake was so intense that the aftershocks lasted for 20 years. The devastation that this brought was significant. So significant, in fact, that the Roman emperor at the time freed them from paying any taxes for years in order to stimulate their economy and help them rebuild. Because of these aftershocks, there were many times where progress was made and then reversed, and the people grew accustomed to living with the constant threat of an earthquake and uncertainty. Imagine living in a place where a natural disaster could strike at any time that could level your city and you had no technology to predict or prevent it. They were very familiar with uncertainty. They also had developed a deep loyalty to Caesar because of his investment in their rebuilding efforts. His commitment to their success was obviously viewed very positively by the people of the city. So the people of Philadelphia had both a strong loyalty to Rome and a healthy, constant fear of disaster striking in the forms of buildings collapsing, setbacks in growth, and economic failure. As we've mentioned throughout the series, during the Roman Empire, worship of the emperor, or Caesar, was common. And this sounds kind of strange to our modern American minds because of the amount of intellectual and religious freedom that we experience in our country. 
But for most of the cultures that Rome came to control, this requirement to worship the emperor wasn't a struggle. They were already polytheistic, meaning they already believed in many gods, like the Greeks and others, so Rome's insistence that they worship Caesar and be loyal to him as a god, it really didn't bother them. They simply saw it as an inevitable result of being under the control of a brand new regime. Jewish people, however, were a problem. They were thoroughly and staunchly monotheistic, meaning they were insistent on worshiping just one God. Now, Rome was willing to tolerate this to an extent. On average, the Jews were well-treated under the Roman rule. In fact, they were granted an exemption from the required emperor worship so long as they were obedient citizens. Thus, synagogues like the one that I'm standing in right now, which were essentially the cultural center of social and religious life for Jews, they kept records of their members. These roles and logs allowed them to specify to the Roman administration who was legally allowed to ignore the command to declare that Caesar is Lord. Philadelphia, a city known for its rich vineyards, strong connection to Rome, and the worship of a fertility god. Standing on a main trade route as a shining beacon of Roman culture to the world beyond. That's the city to which Jesus writes this letter. These Christians were in a city that believed that Caesar is Lord, but they were uncertain what next earthquake might bring the city to its knees. The city of Philadelphia. This was the enduring church. Good morning. Welcome to Northridge. My name is Aaron Hickson. I'm our Henrietta campus pastor. I'm glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in Aronicoid or you are in Henrietta, especially in Henrietta. Really glad to see you guys. Sorry that you have to see me as large as I am right now on your screen. That has to be a disadvantage. Much better when I'm in person and significantly smaller. Um, but we are glad that our Webster campus and our Greece campus and those joining us online are here with us. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving and that you're ready to jump back into the saddle this week, getting ready, really gearing up for just another holiday season, getting closer to Christmas. Uh, but we are, in a, we are in week seven of a seven-week series that was very creatively entitled Seven, um, and... Uh, I'll leave it at that. So I'm going to ask a, a poll question, and I'm going to ask everyone at all of our campuses, all of our locations, you're at home in your pajamas, raise your hand. We're going to break everyone into two categories, okay? So I want to see those hands raised high. First category of people, how many people in the room today you would call yourself an organized type person? You love calendars and systems and processes and like lists. Okay, not that many. Uh, hopefully we have someone in Henrietta because we need to get out of there at the movie theater on time today. Um, but, okay, how many, how many laid-back people do we have? This is the other category. You are go with the flow. Whatever will be, will be. Okay. Okay, I see some of you are sitting next to each other. Different hands. Let me know how that's going. Um, but let me ask you a question. Okay, we just divided all of our church into those two categories, organized, not organized, those kind of people. Who is typically more stressed about the future, the planner or the millennial? I mean the laid back one. <laughs> Who's typically more stressed? The planner, right? I mean the planner is definitely more stressed on average. Why is that? You would think it would be the opposite. 
you would think that lots of planning would equal, it would reduce the amount of worry and stress in your life, but it doesn't necessarily do that. Why is it that laid back people are often less stressed? Well, I think it's because a plan implies some level of expectation about needs or wants or desires. And a planner is acutely aware of the fact that despite the fact that they have a plan, they can't guarantee that any of their wants, needs, or desires are going to come true. Because even the best plan can't guarantee something, right? I mean, I bet all of us had at least one plan that didn't go properly over Thanksgiving. Some of you probably ate a really dry or frozen turkey. Some of you even might have put your house at risk by trying to deep fry it and catching everything on fire. Okay, like all of us have plans that go awry. For my family, we attempted to take professional family photos, utterly forgetting the fact that there are five children under three in our family. It was a disaster, and everyone in my family is the opposite of laid back, so you can imagine that that went really well. Um, but it's true that your expectations are really what cause stress in our life. It's not the traffic jam that causes us to stress. It's whether or not you have a place to be by a certain time that causes stress. The people who have a plan are the people who are honking. The people who don't have a plan are the people who are just listening to some music with the top down. Maybe not in Rochester, they don't have the top down, but you get the picture. Okay, they're relaxed. That's what happens with those different personality types. So why is that the case? Well, I think it's because uncertainty begins when what you need isn't guaranteed. What you need isn't guaranteed. That's when uncertainty begins. And planners are sometimes more stressed out because they've got a much clearer picture about what they need in the future. And the fact that they can't guarantee what they're going to need will be there, it kind of stresses them out. The laid-back person, they don't have a more secure future. They were just planning on winging it when they got there anyway. And so whatever will be is going to be totally fine in their mind. But the truth is, uncertainty is part of all of our lives. Whether you are laid-back or whether you pencil naps in strategically to your weekend's calendar, uncertainty is part of your life. And it can be as simple as not being sure you're going to catch your connecting flight. Or it could be as you know, serious as not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. It could be as mundane as hoping that you get a cool lab partner in biology and as significant as wondering if the diagnosis is going to come back clear. Uncertainty is everywhere. And even the most laid back person in your life has to admit that when you're feeling uncertain, you're not at your best. In our life, uncertainty is uncomfortable. That's just how it goes. When you're wringing your hands or you're chewing your pen cap at work, things aren't good. We tend not to handle uncertainty well. It's a lot harder to crack a joke. It's harder to have patience with your kids. Uncertainty is just uncomfortable. In fact, if we could be done with uncertainty in our lives today, I think that most of our lives would improve. We'd probably have a lot of hours of sleep back. We could probably avoid a number of fights with our spouses our kids would probably feel a lot less pressure, right? If we could just be, there's a lot of positive things that could happen if we could just be rid of uncertainty in our life. And what's amazing is that Jesus wrote a letter to a group of Christians in Revelation chapter three over 2,000 years ago. And it can be the antidote to our uncertainty because when he wrote that letter to those people, he wrote it as a problem, as a solution to their problem 
of uncertainty. And if we discover what he says and we embrace it, then we can find a path through life without uncertainty. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. However you access the Bible on your phone, or if you're using one of our Bibles, it'll be on page 993. I'd love for you to join me there as we read this letter that Jesus wrote to the people of the city of Philadelphia. And there's something you have to know about the people in this city as you're turning there. And that is this. Everything about their life screamed instability. Everything about their life screamed instability. We saw this kind of explained in the video a little bit, but there were two big things in their life that made things very uncertain. First were the earthquakes that occurred in their region. Their city had been destroyed multiple times, and they lived in the constant threat that this could be the day that it happened again. And then secondly for Christians, we'll see that their relationship with the government had very recently turned very bad, and suddenly they were in grave danger of losing their lives just because of their faith. And we'll talk more about that later. But the Christians in Philadelphia were at risk of losing their lives from either the government or a natural disaster at all times. They were on high alert and everything about their life screamed instability. And that's the perspective, the filter through which we need to read Jesus' letter to them. So let's check it out. Starting um, in chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. So this letter starts out with the three standard beginning elements that we've seen in all seven of these letters so far. If you've been with us in this series, we've been walking through letters that Jesus wrote to churches in what was called Asia Minor, what's now called Western Turkey. And these seven churches each received a letter from Jesus. It's recorded in the book of Revelation. And he wrote something specific that addressed the needs that each of these churches experienced. And in the beginning of these letters, there are standard elements, kind of a formulaic way that he approached these letters. And we can kind of observe those patterns as we walk through the seven letters. First of all, we can see the receiver. The first element of the formula is the receiver. And it says the angel of the church in Philadelphia, which we know to just mean the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. Angel is a word that just means messenger. Um, so in this case, we're, don't think halos or wings. We're just talking about a regular guy, okay? The receiver is the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. The second part of the formula is the sender. The sender. Jesus is described here in a specific way that would have been significant to this city. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the third element of the formula was the reminder. The reminder. And the reminder was very simply in, in these letters, I know your deeds. Jesus was writing from a place of awareness. Okay, He's not guessing about their life situation. He knows. And since that's the standard opener for these letters, we need to focus in on the details that are unique to this city to see what Jesus was trying to communicate. And the only unique element in this uh, introductory um, element is how Jesus was described. So let's look at how Jesus was described from the sender. It says, the one who is holy and true. That's the first element. And that's a pretty standard description of deity, but the next part of the description is where it gets really specific to this church. Here's what it says. Who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. 
Well, that sounds a little unique, right? That sounds different. Why would that description have been used? What is it that he's referencing for these people? And what Jesus is doing is actually uh, quoting a very specific Old Testament context. Um, And we're going to look at that passage in just a second. But what's happening in this passage is that there is a palace administrator, a guy who oversaw the palace for King Hezekiah. And the palace is just called the House of David. Um, Often in the Old Testament, it's referenced that way. And so uh, Shebna was this guy. He's the palace administrator. But he does some bad things, and he gets booted and replaced by a guy named Eliakim. And so that's kind of the background of what's going on. And if you want to hear more about this story, um, we're not going to go into a ton of detail this morning, but you can check out our equip email. Check the box for that on your connections card. There will be more details on the backstory um, coming out this Tuesday if you want to check out that article. But in Isaiah chapter 22, here's what it says. It says, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, some of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe. That's Shebna's robe. And fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. So Eliakim is receiving authority from Shebna because of the things that he did wrong. And it says, I will place on his shoulder, that's Eliakim, listen to this, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Sounds familiar, right? This guy Eliakim was being given the keys to the house of David, and he would have a full authority over everything that happens there. What's significant is that Jesus is taking that context, quoting it, and applying it to himself. In other words, he is the one with all of the authority. He is the one who is fully in charge. That's what he's trying to convey. In other words, Jesus holding the keys of David meant that he held ultimate authority. What he says goes. The buck stops with him. If, the, if he says it's open, then it's open. If it's closed, then it's closed. We need to be fully aware as we're leaving this introduction that Jesus was attempting to communicate that he was fully in charge. And this kind of reminds me of one of my teachers in middle school. Um, comparing Jesus to a middle school teacher is probably a little sketchy. Um, but track with me, I hope it'll make sense. Okay, this guy's name was Mr. Manafo. And he was the gym and health teacher as well as the wrestling coach. And he was the stuff of middle school legends, okay? He was shorter, he was pretty muscular, but not in like a showy way, in like a terrifying way. Like you're pretty sure that he got strong by wrestling gorillas or punching bears. Like that's what this guy was about, all right? And the rumors about what he had been and done in his former life like circulated around the school like crazy, like, Was he a former Navy SEAL? Was he a hitman for an organized crime family? Had he won the Olympics at age 10 in wrestling? Hard to know what was true, you know? But what we know for sure was that he was absolutely in charge. He was the gym teacher, the wrestling coach, and he was tough as nails. So I'm in eighth grade. I'm in a public school. They split guys and girls for gym and health. And so we walk into gym on the first day all of us just knowing what's coming because we've heard the legends of Mr. Manafo. And we walk in, we're in like military straight lines listening to him. And he's walking in front of these group of eighth grade guys with his hands behind his back, just kind of like looking at us. And we're just waiting for the speech. And he's like, boys, when you're in my gym, you're on my turf. We're like, okay. <laughs> when I say run, you will run. And you will not stop 
until I tell you to stop. I'm in the back row, like, crying. I'm just terrified. Like, no, Mr. Manalo. And so in that moment, he blows his whistle, and he tells us to start running the stairs. And I'm serious. We were on death's doorstep by the time we were done. We're just running up and down these stairs, like, Mr. Manalo, please let us stop. He's like, I did not tell you to stop. And so we're just running and running and running. I feel as if I'm going to die. And as, as we're going, we're just begging him to let us stop. And he would just say his favorite phrase to help us with the pain would be like, boys, find your happy place. Find your happy place. And we knew, man, when Mr. Manafo said to do it, you had to do it, okay? He was so terrifying. And I just got to say, I might have been a little emotionally scarred, which is why I remember this incident in such vivid detail. But the point is, you knew that the Manafo was not to be questioned. Mr. Manafo was in charge. I don't care how tired you were. When you were in gym, you kept running. And here's the thing, in his introduction to this letter, Jesus is not being, you know, macho or a dictator or something like that, but he was saying to the people of this church, I am not someone to be trifled with, and I make the rules. He was the boss, and he needed them to know it. In fact, he continues with this theme of his authority. Let's look at the next section. It says this, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Remember, Jesus has already said he's in charge. And if he says something is open, then it is open. And he's telling the people of this church that he has placed an open door in front of them. And he, the person in authority, has set them that before them. And nothing can change the openness of that door. No circumstance, no ruler, nothing. It is open and it's staying open. And remember that idea because it's going to come back up in just a second. But Jesus continues on, and he praises them for their ability to remain steadfast. Look what he says. He says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This little strength thing, they could have been little in strength in a number of ways. Maybe small in number. um, Maybe small in resources. They certainly were small in influence. They had been marginalized by their culture. But regardless, Jesus is praising them for their resilience They hadn't denied his name. They were the underdog team, and Jesus was praising their ability to hold firm. Interestingly, there's only two churches of these seven that receive no correction, and Philadelphia is one of them. They've gotten some serious praise. And you start to get the sense a little bit from Jesus that he's in, like, protective older brother mode. Like, he's standing up for this weak little church that's getting pushed around by some bad dudes, but he's proud of them, and he is not going to let them get picked on. And he continues in this letter and starts talking about these bad guys that are in Philadelphia who are about to be on the receiving end of some brotherly love, if you know what I mean. Let's check it out. Here's what it says. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Yikes, right? Big brother is coming and it's about to go down. So what is it with this synagogue? Why are these the bad guys, the people in the synagogue? Well, remember what we saw in the video about the synagogue and how uh, Jews in this time were treated by the Romans. Um, For all intents and purposes in the early phases of Christianity, it was essentially viewed as just kind of an offshoot of Judaism across the board, both in Judaism and in the larger culture as a whole. 
Um, and in their defense, that makes a lot of sense because it was pretty confusing at the time. This was a movement that loved the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They followed a Jewish rabbi. They claimed that their Jewish rabbi was the fulfillment of Jewish holy scriptures. And every single person that was in the movement when the movement started was Jewish. So it does make sense that that's, it was associated with Judaism so strongly. Um, but by the time that this letter was written at the turn of the first century, it was growing as a movement, Christianity was, in predominantly non-Jewish followers. So there was definitely some confusion swirling about who these people were and what they were about. But Jewish people, as we heard in the video, they had received an exemption. So they were not required by law to worship Caesar as Lord. However, in order to practice that exemption, they had to keep really good logs, like lists of people who were in. They had to keep good records. They had to prove at any time who was in their fold, like if they were audited, essentially. And Christians, at first, were kind of included in that umbrella coverage. They were grandfathered into that system and offered them some protection. But over time, Jewish people and others began to realize this is not some offshoot of Judaism with just some misguided people. This is a whole new religion, and it had been a mistake to include them in the synagogue records. So Christians were getting booted from the synagogue. They were being removed from the exemption records, and they were no longer exempt. Now they legally had to declare that Caesar is Lord and worship him. And this was obviously something that put the Christians in grave danger in a way that they hadn't previously experienced. And Jesus is not having it. He's the big brother. His words for this synagogue are harsh. His words are harsh for the people who claim to be following God. They had the Old Testament. They were Bible scholars. They thought they were God's people just because of their ethnicity and their culture. But Jesus is saying, no, no, look, your treatment of the people who follow my son reveals you are not my people at all. And this would have been a huge encouragement to these believers because they were under a lot of pressure. The door to the synagogue had been closed or shut in their face. And Jesus is saying, this thing is wide open and I'm the one in authority and I will come to your aid. These people, this synagogue was wrong and I will open back up the door and no one will be able to close it. You get a little bit this sense of like, pick on somebody your own size. This is like the moment in the movie where the big brother comes in and takes the bully and gives him a swirly and you're like, yeah, finally. Like that's what's going on with Jesus in this moment. He is coming to their aid. And if we put together what we've seen so far, Jesus is the authority. He decides what's what. He's proud of their Christians, proud of these Christians for their strength despite being the little guy. He knows that they've been put in danger for their faith, and he's telling them, I am in your corner. I will stand for you. And then he just starts piling on the encouragement. Let's continue see what it says in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus will protect them. He's the big boss. He is in their corner. And this phrase, the hour of trial, it definitely has implications when it comes to kind of the end of the world stuff that the book of Revelation is, is famous for. And we're not jumping into that content in this series, um, but if you do want to know more about how to interpret that phrase or kind of its background, again, some resources will be in the equip email this week. 
admittedly, it's a little technical, but if you're interested in that stuff, you can, you can check that out this week. Um, I'd love for you to do that. But the point of this phrase is that Jesus will continue to protect them and to shelter them from whatever's coming. And his encouragement doesn't stop there. It continues on with something that I think should be an encouragement for all Christians everywhere for all time. Here's what he says to them in verse 11. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. What a promise. The guy that you know is totally in charge, who knows your suffering, the one that you know is in your corner, he is on his way. And that's such a beautiful statement. Don't get stuck on the word soon. I mean, because it kind of seems like Jesus is like, okay, it's been 2,000 years. Like, soon? Seriously? It's been a little while here, Jesus. But that term in the original language really doesn't imply the same level of immediacy that it does in our culture, the word soon. It's more along the lines of without unnecessary delay is, is kind of the, the implication there. And secondly, we have to understand Jesus and God's timetable is not like ours. God exists outside of the bounds of time. And so we can't, we can't force God into our box and evaluate him based on our very modern, very Western, very time-sensitive, always prompt, Americanized view of time. That's, that's an unfair box to put God in. And I think the point that we should keep in mind is this. We cannot predict, and I don't even think we should attempt to predict the timing of Jesus' return. But whenever Jesus comes, our vindication comes with him. Whenever Jesus comes, our vindication comes with him. All of our questions will be answered. All of our pain will make sense. All of our insecurities will be taken away. Every sacrifice will be forgotten in light of the joy that is so much greater than any sacrifice we've ever made. Whenever Jesus comes, our vindication comes with him. Jesus continues on with his encouragement. He says this, Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. This is the final section of encouragement that Jesus gives this church. And he's describing their eternity if they continue to endure. He tells them to hold on to what they had, which was their faith, their relationship with Jesus. And for those who do, look at what he offers them. He says that they will be a pillar, a fixed emblem in God's house. And he doesn't just say your name will be on a pillar in God's house, which was a common way to honor people who had donated things or were significant members of society. Like today, when someone's building a building, you can sometimes buy a brick and they'll put your name on it in the building, that kind of a thing. He's saying, no, no, not your name on a pillar. You will be a pillar. You're an integral part of the house of God. And it also says, never leaving God's temple. Rock solid, never shaking, never touched by an earthquake. And they'll receive God's name. In other words, be his family, be labeled as his own, and to receive the name of God's city. They could be a resident of the city where God himself lives. And these promises all sound amazing, not just for them, but for us. And I would suggest that these promises all have a single common idea that 
weaves through each of them, and it's exactly what the believers needed. There was a single thread that connects each of these promises together, and that thread is stability. Stability, certainty, security, assurance. Remember what we said about these people. Everything about their life screamed instability. This was a volcanic region. Earthquakes had devastated this city. They built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt. And the aftershocks for 20 years kept them guessing. Their city was a ticking time bomb. And they were accustomed to a life of instability and insecurity. And not only that, but the believers in this city had just added another layer of insecurity in that their life was at risk because of their refusal to worship Caesar as a god. Imagine the level of insecurity they're experiencing. But Jesus promises them something amazing. All your buildings fall, but you will be a pillar that never shakes. You will be labeled as my property, and you will be a resident in my city that will never be destroyed. It will never have to be rebuilt. You will be part of my family. You will receive my name. You can have complete stability. Remember what we said about uncertainty? We said that uncertainty begins when what you need isn't guaranteed. And so little in these people's lives was guaranteed. Yet Jesus promised them full stability. If they trusted in him as the authority, they could never be shaken. The government could take their lives, and at any moment they could be standing in the middle of rubble, waiting for the dust to settle on a city that would have to be rebuilt again. But their hope was in a city that could not be destroyed. Their hope was in being claimed by a God that cannot be defeated. And so they could endure anything. I mean, what can't you endure if you know you've got a future like that coming, right? It's as if this passage is saying you can endure anything when Jesus is your everything. You can endure anything when Jesus is your everything. Their life was crazy. But this church was doing it right. Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. They could endure anything because Jesus was their everything. So what about us? What does this mean for our lives? I think the final verse of this letter really helps us a lot. Verse 13, it says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love that the letters end this way. It's incredibly tempting to think that Jesus wrote incredibly poignant and incredibly specific letters to a group of Christians thousands of years ago and the relevance of those letters died with them. But Jesus says this, if you have the ability to comprehend the words that I am saying, then take these words and understand what they mean for you. He's not referencing people who like literally have ears or people who aren't deaf. This is as relevant for those who are deaf as for those who are hearing. If you can understand these words, Jesus says, live by them. Let them change your life. So what would that look like for us? And we all have uncertainty, right? Things that cause us to stress or worry. Your kids' decisions paying for college, the final years of life for that family member struggling with Alzheimer's, the rent that's coming due next week, or it's, maybe it's just the Christmas party you're already dreading like three days after Thanksgiving. We all have things we're uncertain about. 
Because there are things in our life that we think that we need that just simply aren't guaranteed. In fact, just like the people of Philadelphia, almost nothing in our lives is guaranteed. Yet we're finding that if Jesus is our everything, then we can endure anything. So what is it that makes you uncertain? Man, I could list a bunch of things, but you know what it is in your life. What is it that's triggering right now, the situation, the person? I would suggest that if you have something that you're feeling uncertain about, then you've identified an area of your life that could use some evaluating. Worry, anxiety are not designed to be part of the Christian's life. The things in our life that cause uncertainty are the things that we haven't yet put into their proper place. Things that we have not yet evaluated in light of God's promises. Because certainty comes from, I'm sorry, uncertainty comes from something that you need not being guaranteed. But if Jesus is all that you need, then your uncertainty can disappear. That's the foolproof antidote to uncertainty that we mentioned in the beginning. Your uncertainty can be gone if Jesus is all that you need. And I don't mean this because you're ignorant or you're naive about what could be coming down the road in your life, but because you're looking to a city further down in your life that cannot be shaken because you believe that you're owned and claimed by a God who has absolute authority. So come earthquake or hurricane or job loss or terrorist attack or diagnosis or tragedy or test grade or stock market crash or Just an unkind word from somebody that you love. You can endure anything because Jesus is your everything. What can you do this week to make Jesus your everything? What can I do this week? I think in order to make Jesus our everything in a practical sense, we must turn your everything into nothing. We must turn our everything into nothing. What do I mean by that? I mean, we need to evaluate everything in our lives through the lens of God's promises and recognize that there is nothing in our lives as important, as valuable, or as lasting as our relationship with God. We need to consider everything in our life as nothing compared to what Jesus is and what he has promised. One of the most prolific leaders of the first century who helped The Christian movement spread by God's power was a guy named Paul. He was a really impressive dude. And here's what he wrote in Philippians 3.8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He considered everything in his life, his accomplishments, which were significant, his goals, which were godly, his background, which was on point, his pedigree, which was impeccable. He considered it nothing compared to the value of knowing Jesus. He considered it garbage compared to Jesus. So maybe this week we just need to join the scripture memory challenge we've been doing throughout this series and memorize Philippians 3.8 and actually believe it for our lives to turn our everything into nothing. And this sounds kind of crazy, but that means our kids, our future, our education, our jobs, our parents, all has to be nothing compared to Jesus. And so what that means is the way that you parent, the way that you go to class, the way that you pay your bills, the way that you save or don't save your money, the way you think through treatment options, all of that has to be done in light of the promises of Jesus and in light of what Jesus calls us to do and how he calls us to live. So in your life, what takes priority? 
What are the pressure points? The things that cause you uncertainty and stress and anxiety. When the pressure comes, what do you do and prioritize? If getting ahead at your job requires you to cut some corners and you're willing to do it, Jesus isn't your everything. If keeping your boyfriend means moving in with him and you're willing to do it, Jesus isn't your everything. If getting good grades means plagiarizing a paper and you're willing to do it, Jesus isn't your everything. If being an active and present father in your home is not as important as beating the next level on your video game, then Jesus isn't your everything. I just have to say that everything in our life must be evaluated through this lens if we're going to turn our everything into nothing. And then and only then, when Jesus is our everything, can we endure anything? Because what we will need most, Jesus, will be guaranteed because he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. So what's our step? Maybe for you, it's to memorize that verse. Check the box on the connections card. Take some kind of a next step. Turn your everything into nothing. Because when Jesus is your everything, you can endure anything. And I do think it's hard sometimes to get our heads around what this letter might have meant or sounded like um, to the original hearers. But maybe this will help. So we've gone through this letter and we've tried to understand what it meant for them and what it means for us. But what if Jesus were writing to us? What might it sound like if the message that he gave to these Christians was written directly to us at Northridge Church in Rochester, New York in 2017? I think it might have sounded something like this. Northridge, I know you and I know what you've been through. You've been marginalized in your culture. You're viewed as anti-progress and bigoted. Your choice to follow me has put you at odds with your culture and life isn't always predictable. It can feel like the economy and the future that you dream about for your children just never seems as certain as you'd like. But you've been faithful to me, Northridge. And though you're marginalized by your culture, you've been accepted as my children. And those who are my children can expect complete serenity and full stability for eternity. I will call you my own and you will never be shaken by unpredictability or by rejection ever again. So endure, because I am coming back soon. You can count on that. 